Welcome everyone to the Gov Navigator Show, a government-focused program that won't make you seasick. We're the Gov Navigators. I'm Robert Shea. And I'm Adam Hughes. We hope to enlighten and enliven your week with news and insightful, entertaining guests, all on the topic of government management. Enjoy today's episode of Gov Navigators, brought to you by the creative geniuses behind the award-winning podcast, FedHeads. Welcome all to a special pop-up episode of the Gov Navigator Show. Celebrating. Good. How are you? Celebrating uh, organized labor. As we do every year at the end of the summer. That's right. And uh, all their contributions. There are many wonderful contributions, the least of which is the fact that you get the first Monday in September off. It's like one of my favorite lines from Downton Abbey when the dowager looks up and says, what is a weekend? <laughs> what? <laughs> Reminding me of that T-shirt that says organized labor, the, the people who brought you the weekend. <laughs> a dowager? Is that what you said? I think that's, I forget, she had some sort of fancy title like that. I'm going to have to Google that. I'll, okay. I'll have plenty of time this weekend. That's right. What are you doing for Labor Day, Robert? I'll uh, I'll be in Maine. We're empty nesters, so even I are jetting off for the weekend to Maine to eat a bunch of lobster, dip our feet in the water. It's going to be cold and just tool around. That sounds great. What about you? Golf. Golf. Golf will be part of it. My kids actually have Friday off, too, Hmm. which is uh, in Virginia. It's informally known as, as the King's Dominion rule. It's actually, I think, a Virginia state law that if your school starts before Labor Day, which theirs has, Labor Day obviously is a federal holiday, but you have to give the Friday before Labor Day off as well. I'm not sure what I think of that. I may have it's to go. It's a little weird. It's a little weird, right? We're, well, we're going to put the we're going to put the Gov Navigators intern on it uh, this weekend. No rest for the Gov Navigators intern. We'll get to the bottom of this King's Dominion law for you all out there. So we've got a um, special replay this week. Backed by popular demand. Enjoy. I'm so excited about our guest this week, Robert. I don't uh, know that that sounded as excited. Can you? I, <laughs> is there a lilt or something you can add? I, I mean, am so excited. There about you our go. Guest this week, Jen Palka is joining us. Renowned author, I think, is the right description at this point. Jen's founder and longtime executive director of Code for America and did a stint in government as the deputy chief technology officer during the Obama administration uh, when she and I worked together. And she has written a new book, Recoding America, How Government Fails in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. Jen, thanks so much for being on the Gov Navigator Show. Well, I am equally excited, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start not necessarily with a lot of the substance. I just want to talk about when did you decide to write a book? That seems like an unsurmountable mountain for me. So when did you decide to do it? And is there a is there a dummy's guide that you can recommend or a good YouTube video that teaches you how to write a book? Oh, my gosh. No, no one should ever write a book. It's just awful. <laughs> and if I'd known how awful it would be, I would never have done it, which is, I think, how I've done most hard things in my life. I would never have done Code for America if I knew how hard it would be. I would never have gone into federal government if I knew how hard it would be. So uh, you end up being glad you did. Obviously, I am on all those things. 
but the naivete is such a great way to to just dive in and then deal with the complexity and pain of it later. I decided to do it really when I decided to step down from Code for America, which was about a year and a half or two years before I actually ended up leaving. Transition can take a while. So yeah, I, I really felt like I needed to stop operating on a day-to-day basis and process some of the lessons that both I had learned and that I knew were kind of around me in the community and try to make sense of them, not just for the people who are struggling with the work day to day, but for the people who can make the environment in which they work a little bit more friendly. So I'm trying to get a little bit away from preaching to the choir with the book. Well, unfortunately, you've got the choir on the line here today. Yeah. But give us the premise of the book. What are the main takeaways and why are you optimistic about the ability to help government work better in what you're calling the digital age? Ultimately, when I had some time to step back and reflect, I felt like the framing issue, because there's so many issues that are tied together here, is that we pass laws and policies and they have an intent to get a particular outcome. And somewhere along the way, we are losing that and we're not getting the outcome. And tied up in that, of course, is what I'm known for, which is work in the digital space. But digital is just one of the key forms of implementation today. And really, the issue is not digital per se, but the distance between, and distance in a lot of ways here, between the policy world and the implementation world. And that if we can bring them together, collapse that distance that's temporal, it's cultural, it's all these sorts of things, then we can start to actually get the outcomes that our democratic process intends. So there's a lot in there, but I think that really summarizes it for the average person who, why would they care about this issue? Because they want those policy outcomes. One of the things I like about, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but you, your approach is that you cover a number of issues, but at different levels of government too. This is not solely reserved for the federal government or state or local governments. And I oftentimes I think the narrative is that, well, people understand state and local government uh, more because it touches their their day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. It's services that they interact with more frequently. That's sort of true. I mean, in a lot of ways, people are interacting every day with the federal government too. Can you tell us a little bit about the the beginning and how you sort of got you start the book off with talking about the California unemployment system? And it looks as though you sort of I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, reluctantly got involved with trying to help that, too, as you've done previously with well, federal efforts. So, <laughs> uh, so you, very accurate. Um, talk about how these threads that connect these things across different levels of government, which have vastly different operating models and funding mechanisms and all that. But there are things, threads that you pull out that across them. Talk about that a little bit. Well, one of the things that that crosses them all is this accountability trap that public servants are stuck in. So when you're a public servant, you're supposed to get these outcomes, but you're also supposed to follow established policy and procedure. And those two are frequently at odds, but it doesn't matter what level of government you're at, what you're actually going to get in trouble for in a way that can really damage your career is that fidelity to process. And so we have created a system in which we sort of torture public servants and strongly incent them to to do the thing that will 
keep their career on track, even if it doesn't get the outcome that was intended. And I think that is one of the core things that the public does not understand. And they're so eager to blame government for bad outcomes. And I think too often unwilling to look in the mirror and say, wait, you're part of, you know, the public is part of creating this dynamic, the press as well. And we're not going to change it until we change how we interact with government as the public. It's interesting. We're having this conversation on the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Government Performance and Results Act. Oh, my goodness. I did not recognize that. Happy happy birthday, GPRA. It's things that only the Gov Navigators would know. I also realized that we're in 2023, we're on the 50th anniversary of this book implementation that I taught in some public policy schools, which was also an inspiration for the book. So yeah, many anniversaries right now. Oh, that's great. You know, GPRA was signed into law in order to set outcomes, to remind agencies, policymakers that they're not supposed to be measuring regulations issued, activities performed. They're really supposed to be about measuring and reporting the extent to which they're achieving important outcomes. Setting the outcome goal is not sufficient, doesn't guarantee that it'll be achieved. What do you think organizations need to do to do a better job of actually linking their activities to those outcomes, to performing the activities that are helping achieve them and not those that are distracting? We have GPRA. We also just engaged in some of the stuff in the president's management agenda, which is trying to do the same thing. It's all very important work. I do think it's helpful. One of the ways it goes wrong at the sort of agency level, but also in states and also sort of at the department and team level, is that that culture of blame and focus by the oversight bodies on failure instead of success creates a dynamic in which public servants treat data as a grade, not a compass. And I talk about this in, I think, chapter three of the book when I'm analyzing why it was so hard to get the California Employment Development Department back on track during the pandemic. If you think of, if data is always used as a grade that you get after the fact, it's always a stick to beat you with. And that is so common in public service. So you're trying to constantly game that number to make it look good. If data is thought of as a compass, oh, look, we've gone off track a little bit. Nobody calls the inspector general. Nobody calls for a hearing. If it's a compass, you just, oh, let's turn the wheel. It's a tool in your hands. And there's just a foundational way of thinking about uses of data that is so important for us to shift. And yet the ways in which the public dialogue around data focuses it on it as a grade um, really inhibits our ability to make that shift. What's the best way for agencies to, I mean, in your experience, I think you tried to do this when you were working with Todd as the deputy chief technology officer. How can agencies make that pivot within this sphere of regulatory and oversight environment that we have so that they are encouraging employees to use data as a compass so that they are I would say trying to incentivize programs to achieve their outcomes, even if they're being a little loosey-goosey with some of the ways in which they do it. Can you share some some of your experience in that and maybe recommendations you might have for agency leaders? Yeah, you know, I think when you talk about loosey-goosey, I think what we're really saying is, <laughs> well, let me reframe that for you, Adam. Yeah, please. <laughs> we want 
to empower folks in agencies to be able to interpret law, policy, regulation, guidance, procedure, et cetera, to get the outcome. That's what it's there for. It was written by whoever wrote it, whether it was a member of Congress or somebody in a high level agency interpreting it because they wanted the outcome that was stated. And if you remember that, you can say, oh, there just needs a little bit of interpretation to be used as it was intended. That's a That could be called loosey-goosey, but it is really trying to get the outcome that Congress intended. And the more we can develop that mindset, the better we are. But we have to start with telling stories of public servants who do that. Um, I tell the story of this wonderful leader at CMS who definitely interprets not just sort of regulation, uh, you know, and inserts herself into the interpretation of regulation in order to be able to get the right outcome for doctors in Medicare and for the patients in Medicare. And then really, you know, at the end of her story, insists on interpreting congressional words a little bit. Yes, you could call it loosey-goosey, where she says, I'm going to write an API instead of doing quarterly data extracts to, to achieve this goal. But what she's really doing is saying, I know what Congress wanted and I know how to get that. And that's what I'm going to do. And our oversight apparatus spends zero time finding people like Yadira Sanchez and lifting them up. This gets to the point, too, of it's difficult to legislate a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Robert and I have been involved in this. Robert was involved in implementing a lot of laws like this. By the time the law is finally negotiated and passed, particularly now, you might have a new technology involved that would right. that would further your goal of the the thing you're trying to achieve in the legislation. And going back and amending that is a 18 to 24 month process in law, right? So creating the flexibility within the implementation to do exactly what you're doing, I think, is also uh, pretty important. Yeah, I think a, a friend used to say if they'd really specified how mail was supposed to be delivered, we'd still have the Pony Express. Like, just don't yeah. specify it. Or yep. I talk about this at the end of the book, too. If you're going to specify really anything specific, technology or otherwise, have the people responsible for implementation at the table when you're writing the law. That's a huge cultural change. You know, we just need to normalize that. We talked a little bit before we got on about this event I was at recently at the Aspen Institute. It did highlight federal, state, local leaders who were able to get around some pretty labyrinthine mm-hmm. guidance. This, this we were talking about a very exciting subject, cost allocation guidance, uh, HHS issues Ooh. for grant recipients. And that though it's explicit in places, they that jurisdictions can pool resources from different grant funds to build a data infrastructure that will allow them to track outcomes. Mm-hmm. Most are afraid to do it for fear they will cross their auditors. And you talked about what we need to do to bring the that part of the accountability community on board. Talk a little bit more about that. I, I do wonder, I'm, I'm planning to spend some more time with IGs and auditors and, you know, maybe go hang out at the Government Accountability Office. Um, great people there. Apologies, and, apologies and, for that in advance. No, 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 they're wonderful. They're wonderful people. There are people, there are people. Wonderful, wonderful people. I want to understand if they truly understand the downstream effects of their imposing sometimes a really conflicting set of rules, right? That's that's the problem. Sometimes you have direction coming from one place without an awareness of the constraints that are coming from a different direction. And it's oftentimes auditors that will, you know, double down on the bind that you're in under those 
you know, I had a situation here in California state level, obviously, where the CIO had commissioned a, a new strategic plan that I found quite innovative. Two years later, because of, you know, some deficiencies that are, you know, obvious, like the unemployment insurance crisis, where we didn't get what we wanted, advocates called for an audit of the California Department of Technology. And of course, the auditors are just looking for any deviance from standard procedure. And they're looking for compliance with established procedure and where there isn't procedure, should there one be added? So you sort of double down on the procedure fetish. That's the reference to this Nick, wonderful Nick Bagley article that everyone should read. But one of the things that came up in the audit was that the strategic plan was non-standard. So this thing that was exactly what everybody had been encouraging CDT to do suddenly becomes a red mark on an audit and there's calls to the governor's office and everyone's freaking out. If you really want to encourage innovation, you have to stop disincentivizing it through the various oversight processes. Will they do that again? Will they try to color outside the lines again? I wouldn't blame them if they didn't, yeah. but that's exactly what we need. Well, and you said earlier too about it's a way for folks who want to work in government to give back through public service to have their careers not advance as fast as they could or be derailed. And I was having a conversation last week with someone that who we both worked at GSA but didn't overlap. And she said something like, Well, I, you know, everyone's getting out of GSA. How do I do that? And I said, You know, if you tick off enough people enough times, sort of making a joke that I, that's what I had done when I was there, they ask you to leave. So she laughed. <laughs> um, but I, I think that. that's you're, you're, <laughs> well, that's why I was only there for about four years. So, but, but I also wanted to to ask you about. I think it, I think what you're saying about auditors and those who are doing the oversight per, in the executive branch, GAO and IGs, but also on the Hill, I don't yeah. think that they have that level. They don't have that level of interaction. It's so formalized. And, you know, I, Robert, you and I have talked about this a lot, too. Even just the executive branch to legislative branch exchanges, they used to be much more informal. Folks in the executive branch used to be able yeah. to go and have conversations with Hill staff to talk about, here's how it's going with implementation. And that informed a more regular dialogue and I think a better policymaking process. And I think that it's gone, that doesn't happen anymore. And I think that's impacts the way policy is, but I think it impacts your larger point in the book too, that that flexibility and that comfort level with coloring outside the lines in the executive branch is from an error long ago. It's impacting the way implementation works as well. Oh, absolutely. It's this sort of blame, risk aversion, creates bad yeah. outcomes, increases blame, increases risk aversion, totally negative cycle, and you have to break it. But again, I see public servants going and breaking it. There's a story of Natalie Cates in the book who is told working on this CMS project that she's got to create a Facebook for doctors, which she knows is a huge distraction from the actual thing that needs to happen and a terrible idea. And she decides on her own to go over to the Hill, you know, and talk to them about it and say, is this what you intended? And of course, they're like, what are you talking about? Of course, we didn't intend that. <laughs> I mean, I can just imagine if she, I, you know, I don't remember how she got permission or if she didn't get permission to do yeah. that. But yeah. I know from my own experience, if you ever said, oh, let me just go over and talk to the Hill about this. Oh my God, they'd like handcuffs would go on you People freak, they, they lose their minds. Absolutely totally not okay yeah. to do. And yet we have to find ways to have these honest conversations and just create a feedback loop. We know mm -hmm. from like the entire rest of society that things work better 
when there's a feedback loop. And we have killed almost all the channels for that. And we there have to be people in positions of power who start to see that as a fundamental disconnect, not a situational thing where we can make an exception here and there. Well, and I remember, I feel like I remember talking to you back when we were in government too about, uh, you know, beta testing and and user groups and how the Paperwork yeah. Reduction Act would, you know, technically would uh, inhibit the ability. And I, that's gotten a little bit better. Unless you're willing to go outside, there's no way to overcome the the structures that have been put in place. As you mentioned, all well-intentioned at the time, but that overlap and that crisscross makes it in a, an environment where you can't actually be creative and get, get the outcome that, that we're all looking for. We don't have a lot of time left, but I want to touch on this subject, Jen. The previous administration wants to dismantle the administrative state. And though there are genuine problems, I want to clarify, is that what you're talking about or is it something else? I'm talking about unshackling the administrative state. In some ways, the tactics may occasionally look similar, but they are absolutely in the service of different goals. And in some ways, the tactics are going to be very, very different. Schedule F is, uh, to me, the nightmare version of something that absolutely has to happen. We need bold civil service reform, but being able to fire people at will is not the right way to do it. But if we don't address the issues that are driving the desire for that within the current context, then we're inviting that kind of nuclear option. So I really wanna see more action. When, when, when I go around to federal agencies, that is, I get the occasional person pulling me aside in the hallway on PRA. It's still a problem. And they want me to yes. know. God, you're um, fun. God, you're fun. Yeah. It's hiring that I'm often hearing as sort of issue one, two, and three. From my view on the ground, time to hire for critical positions, especially specialized positions, has gotten longer under the Biden administration. That's not acceptable. It needs to get shorter. And we have to take that seriously. Thanks so much for being with us and for this important contribution. What We will do whatever we can to amplify this for our small audience, but beyond. But I wish you the greatest success in bringing about the culture change that you're preaching about, because to reverse the trend in trust for government, we absolutely need it. Well, we are allies on that. It was a delight to see both of you. And I hope this is the beginning, not the end of many conversations. Unbelievable. Well, I'm optimistic after that. Yeah. The way that she talks about it and describes it, I think, does help a lot for folks who aren't in the government sphere, who don't do this professionally every day. Uh, I think it really crystallizes it for them. So really, really pumped that she was able to join us. So it's uh, going to be a slow week in uh, D.C. as far as the federal government is concerned, except for the fact that you are featured on a Cherry Beckert webinar. When is that? Wednesday, August 9th. Wednesday, August 9th at? I'll be on at 9.30. 9.30. But it's a, Eastern it's a, time. What are you going to talk about? So I'll be talking about the federal policy landscape and the impact that specific federal policies have on state and local governments. Sounds good. Right up your alley. I'd like to say yep. I'd be listening, but I won't be. Well, you're at the beach. That's right. On a well-deserved break. Oh, you're kind. Make sure that you keep everything running smoothly. I will do my best to turn the lights out at night before I leave. I got your post-it note with all the to-dos, so I appreciate yeah. that. Talk to you when I get back. <laughs> Enjoy the beach. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Gov Navigator Show, brought to you by Gov Navigators. We sure hope you enjoyed it and learned something in the process. And didn't get seasick. Right, of course. If you want to know more about us and what we're up to, please follow us on social media or visit govnavigators.com. Ahoy! Oh, jeez.